the homily for the 20th Sunday after Pentecost. My dear friends, if you look closely, all of the gospel today refers to one aspect, and that would be the virtue of faith. In the gospel, we're told the story of a man who came to ask our Lord for a miracle. Now, contrary to another instance that we read in the gospel, or that we read of in the gospel, uh, there was another man who was the centurion, and he said to our Lord, It is not necessary for you to come into my house. It is enough that you say a word. But this man, contrary to that, the one that we are seeing today, he insists that our Lord comes to his house. And his lack of faith prompts those words from our Lord. Unless you see signs and wonders, you believe not. These words require that we stop for a moment and consider them because they seem to imply that our Lord would deem that faith most praiseworthy, which is not based in seeing miracles and wonders. Now, there is a room for miracles and wonders to prove that God has revealed something. But once that we know God has revealed something to us, miracles are not necessary, as we will see. Let us then today consider faith and some of the constitutive elements of the faith, you know, what makes the core of faith. And for that we're going to review some texts from the First Vatican Council. I call it first, it's really the only Vatican Council, but I call it first just to distinguish it from what everybody knows as the Second Vatican Council. And so we will use three different texts from it, which will answer the following questions. First. What is faith? Second, what am I supposed to believe? You know, what, does, what is the object of faith? What exactly is what faith proposes to me? And third, what are the reasons for me to believe that the church really is the depository of the faith? What are the reasons of credence? And first, for the first text, let us consider what faith is. The First Vatican Council tells us, it is a supernatural virtue by which, with the inspiration and aid of the grace of God, we believe to be true that which he has revealed on account of the same authority of God, who cannot be deceived nor deceive. These kind of definitions require for you to take one word at a time, one concept at a time, and dwell on it. We don't have time to cover the whole thing. But let's look at the first part. It says that faith is a virtue that comes from God. It's a gift that comes from God. Meaning we cannot attain faith by our own efforts. We do correspond, yes, and we dispose our souls to better receive this gift from God, but we cannot go and get it through our own means. And consider for a moment here, how great is this gift of faith. By it, for example, we alone, who receive it, are able to know part of the future. God has deigned to reveal to us in faith, in the deposit of faith, some of the things that will happen in the future, and we know those things. The rest of the world walks in darkness, but for us it is clear. It is clear that if we sin as a society, we will be punished. It is clear that if we don't sin, if we refrain from it, we, there will be peace. 
We know by Revelation that sooner or later there will be a great triumph of evil that will be temporary. We know that there will be a moment where there will be almost no faith in the world, that there will be great persecutions. We know that the Jewish people will convert at the end of the world. We know all of these things thanks to faith. Thanks to faith, what happens after death for us is not a question, while for millions of people in the world it is the worst question that there is, the worst uncertainty. What will happen after these few years on earth? But faith teaches us that with certainty. Not only that, with faith we can know the inner life of God. We can know who God really is, that there are three persons in one God, something that in all of eternity, no one could ever know unless God had revealed it. And so the faith, my dear friends, is indeed a great gift, a gift from God. Now, as we said, this definition has a lot to it, but we don't have time to cover all of it, but I don't want to talk about another matter. Let's go into the next text of Vatican Council, which tells us what exactly we ought to believe. What is the object of faith? It says, We must believe with divine and Catholic faith all that is contained in the Word of God, whether written or transmitted through tradition, and which the Church by a solemn definition or by its ordinary and universal magisterium proposes as divinely revealed. Here, my dear friends, it is said to us, where is the treasure chest, the divine storage unit, if you will, where you can find all the truth, all the wisdom of faith? And notice that it doesn't say in Scripture alone. It doesn't say either in what this man or that man tells you alone. Neither does it say to you, faith is found in your feelings, in how you feel when you walk into the church, or in how you feel when you hear this preaching or in how you feel when you read the Bible. None of that. It rather tells us faith is found, yes, in Scripture and tradition, both of which form the Word of God. Scripture and tradition, they are inseparable. You cannot take just one or just the other. You have to take both. They complement each other. They explain each other. But not only that, there is a third element that we often don't hear about. Is a scripture, tradition, as proposed, as interpreted by the church. So there are three elements in there in what is the object of faith that we must consider. Is scripture and tradition interpreted by the church? The one church, the true church, which is the foundation, the walls, and the pinnacle of the building of our faith. You often hear, this person has a lot of faith, this Protestant or this, you know, Christian has a lot of faith. But no, all faith out of the true church is wreckage. It doesn't matter how big you think it is. And the smallest faith, the tiniest faith that a person might have, if it is within the church, it survives. What the church believes, that we ought to believe. Whether I like it or not whether it seems profitable or not, whether it gives me nice feelings or not. This is what we ought to believe. Not what I think that the scripture says, 
Not what I think the tradition says, but what the church has always taught for 2,000 years that there is in scripture and tradition. But one might ask, why? Why is it necessary to have the church? And it's very simple. Consider it, my friends. If you knew all of scripture by heart, and if you knew all of the tradition of the church by heart, that would not suffice. Why? Because it is still necessary to interpret it. It is still necessary for you to apply those things, those teachings to your life, to your decisions, to the world. And in that application, when you have to take that information and put it in practice and apply it to this or that situation, you depend on your reason alone and your reason can fail. If you trust in your reason, you can make mistakes, as your life experience clearly shows you, I suppose, and as the world experience of 2,000 years shows us, that in 2,000 years we have seen one mistake after another, and what is even worse, mistakes repeating themselves. Men committing the same mistakes that were done 500, 600 years ago out of ignorance. So when we rely on our reason to interpret tradition or scripture, we will fail. And it is for this reason that God has given us one Catholic Church, one authority that, that proposes and defines what exactly is the meaning and the reach of those truths that we find in the Word of God, whether it be the written Word of God or the delivered Word of God through tradition. So there we have, my dear friends, what, bring, what is given to us by that second text of the First Vatican Council. What we ought to believe. At this point, I have to stop. Let's bring in the incredulous, the free thinker, as they mistakenly call them. And here he comes, he comes and he says to me, Yes, I agree. If you could prove to me that God has revealed something, it only makes sense that I would believe him. You'll, I'll also even agree that it would make sense that God would establish one authority, one single authority, so that we all could go there and receive without a doubt what he has revealed to us. But I don't believe what you're saying. I don't see, I'm not convinced, because why should I believe that that authority is the Catholic Church? How can you prove to me that what the Catholic Church proposes is indeed revealed by God. What are the reasons for me to believe? That is the third question. Why should I believe? What is the proof to me that the divine revelation is held here in the Catholic Church? And the answer for this is what the Catholic Church itself calls the reasons for credence. Or perhaps it might be found in the books as the motives of credibility. I myself use books that are not in English, so I'm not sure exactly what term is used. But these are basically the reasons that we have, the proof, the evidence that we have, that indeed God has revealed the truths that the faith of the Catholic Church teaches. And what are these reasons? Some of them you already know. I'm sure all of them actually you might know already. And let's cover them briefly. One of them is prophecies. Among all the other religions, 
the Catholic Church is the only one that has prophesied events that were to happen hundreds of year la years later, in great detail. Events that it was impossible to foresee, that were even contradictory to the spirit of the group of the people that had those prophecies. Things, not only one or two or three, but many of them, that were very specific. The, in the Catholic Church, the birth of Christ was prophesied more than 700 years earlier. It was prophesied the time where he was going to be born. It was prophesied the city and the circumstances. And if you pay attention to something, you know, there's something that you call literary criticism. And that is, uh, there are certain rules that tell you if something is false or if something has been made up. And when you apply these rules to the Bible, to the tradition, to the teachings of the church, they prove perfectly that these are true things. Because, for example, if I was making up a prophecy about the Messiah, I would have said that the Messiah would be born in Jerusalem, in one of the big cities of Israel, not in a tiny city. But no, it was prophesied that he was going to be born in Bethlehem, where King David had been born. If I had been making up a prophecy, I would have said that the Messiah would be born quickly, you know, at some point, to relieve the people that are hearing my prophecy. But no, the prophecy says that he was going to be born 700 years plus later. If I was making up a prophecy to encourage my people to be popular, I would say that the Messiah would be a great victorious man, and I would say that the Messiah would deliver the people from all tyranny and would give them a lot of bread and a lot of money and all those things. And the prophecies actually, although they do prophesy the triumph of Christ, they prophesy that he would be rejected by his people, they prophesy that he would be spit on, that he would be scourged, that he would suffer, that, who, that even that he would be delivered to the enemies, to the Gentiles. But all these things are prophesied in great detail. And those prophecies, as I said, are not popular. They are not prophecies that one would make up to have some interest in it. They perfectly fulfill the requirements of criticism. Another reason that is given is miracles. Now, our Lord today has told us, yes, that our faith must not reside mainly on miracles. We should not depend on miracles alone to believe in God. But here we do not use miracles as a reason for us to believe in God, but rather as a reason for us to be certain that God's revelation resides in the church, in the Catholic Church. And the first miracle, of course, my dear friends, is the resurrection of our Lord, the one man in the only religion in the world, the only group in the world where a man said that he would die and that he would rise again from the dead through his own power, and he did. And again, we follow the rules of criticism. When we read the story that tells us about the resurrection of our Lord, if, if this was a made-up story, the apostles and those who were writing it would say, we believed from the first moment, and we saw these great wonders, and we saw all these things, and this and that, and, and we saw him every day, and he came to us, and, and he would, they would make up a story that would be much more abundant in all those details. It is actually quite the contrary. 
When you read the story of the resurrection of our Lord, you see that the apostles confess they did not believe themselves. One of them himself says the, th the words of any atheist today, I will not believe unless I see it, unless I touch it. And you see all these things that tell you, if you're honest, tell you clearly this is a true story. The resurrection of our Lord, his ascension into heaven. But not only that, after that, the continuous miracles that succeeded one after another in the Catholic Church, even to the point of the 20th century, the resurrection of dead people, the impossible and instantaneous healing of thousands of people, most of these things record or analyzed by doctors or by witnesses, but many of them also unknown, that only God knows, or only those who were benefited, who received the benefit, know about it. One of the great miracles of our time was the one of Our Lady of Fatima in 1917, when thousands of people watching all at once saw the exact same thing, the sun moving in impossible ways, ways that cannot be explained by science. Does that mean that the sun actually moved, or was it just an appearance? Whichever it was, it was still a miracle. And it was a miracle that was witnessed by thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds, and all of them in different places, not even in the same place. You could not speak of any kind of mental uh, suggestion or hallucination, because many of them were separated. They never talked to each other. There was no agreement on what they were supposed to see. One of the great miracles of our time. But even though prophecies and miracles are great reasons to believe, I believe that the greatest proof we can find of the Church's mission as a depository of divine revelation is the Church itself. And when we look at the Catholic Church, we can truly say that there is no truth that has been more proved, that has received more witnesses, that has been more tested, than those truths of the Catholic faith. Because here you have an institution that has remained unchanged for 2,000 years, the only institution in the universe that has lasted for so long, unchanged in its essence. No other institution on earth is alike. Because this institution opposed every single corruption and sin and deprivation that mankind has come up with never yielding to not even one of them, something that makes it unique. For this reason, this institution has faced the enmity and persecution of almost every single form of government it was under in man's history, and it still remains. This is an institution that promotes all kinds of things that are difficult, that are unpleasant to the depraved nature of man, and still stands. This is an institution that has been attacked by thousands of heretics, hundreds of schismatics, kings, emperors, revolutions, secret societies, empires, infiltrations, by the media, by books, by movies, by music, by the war, by burnings, by pillages, and it still stands. This is an institution whose members have been crucified, burned alive, thrown to the lions, lined up and shot in Russia and China, sent to the prison, prisons in Siberia, starved to death, beheaded in the Middle East, 
hanged in Mexico, exiled here in America, raped in Africa and China, and many other things in the world throughout all of its history, and it still stands. This, my dear friends, is the greatest miracle, the greatest reason for belief, the standing point of our faith. It is our bulwark and it is also our greatest weapon. It is the rock on which we stand and the foundation of all our belief. Let it be then, my dear friends, today, that we do not deserve that rebuke of our Lord, that we do not need any more miracles, that we not, do not need any more signs, that we believe because we have had enough signs. Let it be that we believe not in the Bible alone, but neither in tradition according to my whims, but in the Bible and tradition as the Church teaches them. Let it be that we believe what the Church teaches, what the Church promotes, that we permit what the Church permits, and that we forbid what the Church forbids. The Church that has remained untouched, immaculate, and forever a rock standing against the waves of time. This, in truth, is the one and only teacher of the faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.